This is the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live podcast. This is Max Hedrum, and what you're about to witness is one of the most sinister-sounding intros to a trailer to one of the greatest epics ever produced. And there's more. Yes, it. Yes, it. Yes, namely... And afterwards, that is directly following, I want to talk to you about something even bigger. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Good day to all, and welcome to the third Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live podcast for September 2016. I'm your host, Daryl Macias, and I'm recording from the University of New Mexico Department of Emergency Medicine. In fact, specifically, from our International Mountain Medicine Center, where I'm the medical director. In our center, we have our Diploma of Mountain Medicine programs, our Wilderness Medicine Fellowship, and, of course, our landmark resident and student wilderness and austere medicine rotation. I'm also a professor of emergency medicine with a French Diploma of Mountain Medicine. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, I, yes, I'm living the dream. If I sound a bit loopy, it's because I am. Now, you may be asking yourself, Self, what happened to that Dr. Jeremy Jocelyn, our last host? Well, he's still among us, but he had to step down as media editor to pursue a great opportunity in his department. So, the Wilderness Medical Society gave me the crown and said, You go, boy. I'm going to do things just a wee bit different. I won't go through the entire journal for September, but I'll feature a few articles from the author and have a reviewer to lead the discussion. For this month, we talked to Dr. Brent Ruby about his paper on comparing fluid volume and temperature while exercising in the heat. Then, we talked to Dr. Wolfgang Lederer in Austria about Alpine helicopter EMS rescue for pediatric emergencies around Austria and Italy. Then, damas y caballeros, we got to keep the international thing going. We'll roll into interviews. The WMS and the International Society of Mountain Medicine hosted an excellent conference this past August in Telluride, Colorado, USA, and I was able to catch up with some of the movers and shakers in wilderness and mountain medicine. If you want to participate as a reviewer, or if you have something interesting we could talk about in the future, drop us a line at the Wilderness Medical Society. But for now, let's hang on and get started. Paper number one, thermoregulation. Let's go to our first author. Dr. Brent Ruby. Brent, welcome, and please tell us about yourself. I'm at the University of Montana, and I serve currently as the director for the Montana Center for Work Physiology and Exercise Metabolism. And we conduct a whole host of laboratory and field research projects, most of which are funded through a variety of DOD agencies. We chase a number of different research subjects, depending on the event or the occupation or the military operational stress, training pipelines, so on. But we're very interested in the interaction between the human and the environment that they're having to do their work. And to review with Dr. Brent Ruby, we have a reviewer, Dr. Linda Sanders, who finished her emergency medicine residency at Temple University in Pennsylvania and just started her wilderness medicine fellowship at Augusta University in Georgia. Linda, I'm sure you're having fun. It's been really fun. It's a good start to the year. Now, Dr. Ruby will discuss our first paper, Thermoregulation During Extended Exercise in the Heat, Comparisons of Fluid, Volume, and Temperature. Brent, tell us about your paper. Hit it and hit it hard. Well, what we've noticed and what I've noticed over the years with a lot of the military groups that we've worked with and a lot of the other occupational teams that we've worked with, namely the wildland fire community, uh, we kind of get this impression that hydration practices are often placed at the forefront when it comes to the maintenance of thermal control when you're working or exercising in the heat. However, the management of the metabolic heat production or the rate of heat loss versus heat gain, that remains mostly disconnected to drinking behaviors at least when sweat production is present. So the goals of our study were to evaluate the accumulative effects or or thermal stresses during three hours of exercise in the heat uh, when fluid intake, temperature, and volume were altered. And so we basically provided three experimental trials, one of which we call the full volume water trial, We also have a full volume ice slurry trial, uh, which is essentially two parts cold water, one part ice slurry, 
or ice, shaved ice. And then we also had a third trial, which was half volume slurry, where we, we compromised the fluid delivery by half the volume, uh, but it was in the form of this ice slurry. And then those were provided at 10 minute intervals throughout the intermittent exercise protocol, which was 25 minute work to five minute rest ratio. And that was repeated for a three hour window of time. The work rate was 40% of peak VO2. So the hypothesis was that thermal regulation is an independent function from the fluid that you take in. We've always been the proponents that you're not going to drink your way out of the potential for a heat injury if your metabolic heat production is off the charts and you can't offload that heat. So that's sort of the background and the, the thought process behind the study design. Wow. After having done medical direction at the Badwater 135, where hydration is an enormous challenge in the heat, well, it seems that you won't finish if you are hypohydrated or too hot. There's only so much water you can carry. Wildland firefighters and those involved in operational medicine are also key targets to study. Linda, give us your thoughts. Well, first of all, Brent, I just wanted to say I thought your study was well-designed, really thoughtful, um, and good job uh, recruiting people to have a rectal probe in for that amount good of job. time. Good job, good um, job. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my first question is, so in this study, while participants uh, consuming a full volume ice slurry had reduced rectal temperature and heart rate, their sweat rates were actually the same across the three groups. So I think it, given this data, it's not surprising that the half slurry group also had a greater body mass loss, right? Because they actually consumed less volume while maintaining the same sweat rate. Now, the significance of body mass loss is something that's been under debate, and actually in the most recent journal from the Wilderness and Environmental Journal, there was some debate back and forth about whether or not this is significant, and the fact that many endurance athletes can tolerate body mass losses of greater than 2% without suffering any impairment in their performance. Beverage temperature may add another consideration to this debate. So do you think that in ideal circumstances where an athletic participant or an endurance participant um, has no limitations to their container space or the weight that they can carry, do you think we should be advising these patients or these participants to consume the same volume of an ice slurry as they would of an ambient temperature, given that they suffer the same volume losses? I think under, un, under hot conditions, the opportunity, these results at least to allude to that concept, or they suggest that the ingestion of a colder beverage that's as close to zero, as, zero C as you can will aid in the maintenance of thermal regulation. I don't want to say it's a false uh, direction, but when the focus is placed exclusively on hydration and not on thermal regulation, that's where we start to see the disconnect. So no matter what, fluid loss and the loss of the overall body weight, it, that's going to be expected. You see that over and over and over again. And most often, people finish event, no worse for wear. No one should warrant an attempt to replace fluid or body weight loss in a one-to-one -one ratio. I think that's ultimately going to catch up to you um, unless you're doing a fine job of, of taking in supplemental electrolytes in the form of solid foods and, and whatnot. Um, but these results really suggest that it's, it's possible to reduce the fluid intake while retaining the same thermal stress so long as the amount of the fluid is cold. And in work situations where these individuals have to carry for most, like with wildland fire, I mean, they got to leave the day carrying the, the water that they're going to have throughout the whole day. And nowadays with all the new vessels that are available, yeah, they're a little bit heavier. At the same time, if you need to carry slightly less fluid, the weight trade-off could be beneficial. So you haven't bought any of that dehydrated water yet. I believe it's coming out of China. <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah. So actually, that transitions nicely to my next question, which was that, you know, well, 
we've considered volume status and thermoregulation as important factors, I think people are always trying to strike a balance of hydration and electrolyte status, trying to avoid exercise-associated hyponatremia. In this study, you guys evaluated plasma electrolyte concentrations in each of the groups and found that while sodium concentrations decreased in each group, the concentrations were higher in those who consumed the half-volume slurry. Again, I, I don't think that's surprising, but do you think that lower volumes of colder beverages might help prevent overhydration in those participating in extended exercise and thus reduce the risk of exercise-associated hyponatremia? I, I, do, I do think that's a definite possibility, especially if the cold beverages provide some level of satisfaction that they might otherwise capture from a larger volume of a warmer beverage. Now, what we provided as the whole volume water, it was room temperature, which in most race aid station situations is not going to be the case unless something has gone bad or it's a remote location or whatever. But it certainly is the case in most military scenarios or certainly in the world of fire. Those guys typically can't keep their fluids cold enough. So I do think that half volume slurry has the potential to reduce the risk of overhydration. I also think that overhydration is considerably more of a risk for a lot of these athletes, occupational and other, because there is such an overemphasis on maintenance of hydration. It's going to be hot out there, guys. Make sure you hydrate. And that message is so vague to the end user. For most of us, most of these guys, especially in the world of fire, these are young very fit individuals. And we, when they hear, it's going to be hot out there, make sure to drink, They are their mindset develops this thought process that is, that is more must be better. More is going to provide protection. And that's what I think this could assist in alleviating that. It's like less in this case might be more. So I think that's a really good thought. You also measured the participants' rating of their perceived exertion during these trials, uh, which you abbreviated as RPE, and so we can use that abbreviation here in this discussion. And this was really the patient-centered outcome in the study, from what I gathered. I was kind of surprised that there was no significant difference in their perceived exertion among the three groups. Um, just based on my own experience as a long-distance runner, I kind of assumed that those consuming an ice slurry would rate their um, perceived exertion as lower. What do you make of that? And might there have been a difference in the RPE, you think, if the patients experienced more physical strain or achieved an even higher aerobic capacity? That could be possible. These values, especially when you look at the core temperature values, we were seeing them up in the high to mid 38 range for, for rectal temperature. I think if they would have been forced to work at a slightly higher level, to push not just the core temperature. And I think it's a really important to distinguish between the metric that is rectal temperature and a metric that we have begun to use much more. And that is a, a composite between the skin temperature and the heart rate. The gap between skin temperature and core temperature is really provides tremendous predictive capability uh, in terms of how, how well the person's gonna offload heat. And I think if we did have a slightly higher metabolic rate, we would have started to see more separation in that RPE like we saw with all the other physiological metrics. But these, the, the PSI values, the physiological strain index, which is the composite with heart rate and rectal temperature, that, that didn't really uh, encroach too closely on what we consider for a lot of our modeling studies at risk, which the group at Eucerium and others have used a cutoff of 7.5. So, if we would have gone to a slightly higher work rate, yeah, we might have seen some separation. But as soon as you start to creep up towards 50% of VO2 max for a study like this in full clothing, these are battle dress uniforms that they're wearing. So full clothing, pretty hardy, hot environmental conditions, then there's the risk of somebody dropping out of the study. So that was sort of the double-edged sword. But I do think we'd, you'd definitely start to see some separation if you were to pump up that intensity if they could tolerate the three hours. Some studies seem to indicate there is no impact on performance in these endurance athletes despite an increase in temperature or heart rate. Could we generalize these findings to the military population? I do think they're comparable, but it's, it, it becomes quite different when you put, put it in the context from a, a self-selected work rate in an occupational setting or military training setting and a competitive 
situation because even though we're not able to make suggestions related to impaired or maintained performance in the present study, we do have a new paper that did monitor self-selected performance in a similar protocol using three different one-mile time trials in the middle of the, in the effort. So I think that they are comparable, but it's hard to distinguish between is the whether the performance decrement is due to an elevated core temperature or if the performance decrement is due to an artificially created or what is most often in these studies an artificially created change in body weight due to sweat loss. So I don't know if that answers the question, but I think they are comparable. I think that an elevated skin temperature and heart rate in parallel can serve as a warning sign that an athlete might not be able to effectively offload heat. And I think uh, targeting metrics like that are going to provide for a much more successful evaluation in real time so that you can intervene appropriately. Uh, I think long gone need to be the days of constantly measuring core temperature and making decisions exclusively on that. Because if we wait until the core temperature is too high, whatever that means, that, that might be 38.5. If it's already 38.5 and now you're going to intervene or 39, that's too late. Should we really care if these patients, the participants, have an elevated core body temperature and heart rate if it's not impacting their performance, their comfort level, or causing them any illness or injury? Yeah, and I was watching the Olympic marathon yesterday, and they said, <laughs> oh, we've put some of these athletes, these are the U.S. athletes, they've been put in a chamber, and we monitored their core temperature, and I thought they must have loved that. <laughs> but you probably use the ingestible capsules, of which we have found those typically fail about 30% of the time, and we found over and over that that data is not very compelling. Little side note, when we're talking about capsules, we're talking about the thermometer capsules that are swallowed. When you think about the range that is human core temperature in the norm from a resting value up to what the hottest you might expect safely, which might be 39.5 or 40C, you're not going to see a lot of fluctuation within that. So I don't think that's what needs to be watched. I also think that trying to monitor hydration status in real time is going to be very difficult because there's not a very good whole series of metrics that allow for that. So the other thing is that even though we might see impaired performance with slight dehydration, slight dehydration may serve as a protective mechanism that ultimately reduces our metabolic heat production and keeps us safe in these environments. So to take this home, it seems like if I can cool my drinking water to slush, I will do better and maybe, maybe not have less drinking requirements. However, only ambient water temperatures, 35 degrees or in the 90s Fahrenheit if you're metrically challenged, were studied. So let's say I'm an ultra marathoner. I want to do a 50 kilometer or a 35 mile run. Do you have any recommendations for me? So the, the studies that we've done at Ironman and Western States and Badwater, for example, the fluid intake output balance at Ironman can be as high as about 16 liters in 12 hours. Uh, and the only way that an individual is going to be able to pull that off is with a delicate balance between a constant attention to not only fluid intake, but food intake that brings with it accompanying electrolytes that are going to maintain the homeostasis within the blood. Uh, and what's, what's amazing is in these events, these athletes don't have a position statement in front of them or a scale or this or that. Their self-selection to the right stuff is phenomenally accurate. Well, and there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. And thank you, Dr. Ruby and Dr. Sanders for this enlightening interview. Article number two. Helicopter EMS and Alpine Rescue for Pediatric Emergencies. We have the principal author, Dr. Wolfgang Lederer, from the Department of Anesthesiology and Critical Care Medicine based out of Innsbruck Medical University. Wolfgang has been an integral part of rescue medicine in this region, located in Tyrol, in the area of southern Austria and northern Italy. <laughs> He 
He's going to discuss their pediatric experience where their fast Eurocopter EC-135 is able to reach five Austrian, one Italian, and three German hospitals from where they're at in just 15 minutes. Now, for those of you not familiar with European Rescue or European EMS, it is typical to have a physician versed in emergency medicine and a rescue technician who also functions like a nurse or paramedic on scene. Now, keep in mind that emergency medicine in Austria by itself is not a specialty as we know it in North America. The Notfallmedizin, the emergency medicine as they call them, is usually a critical care anesthesiologist specialist located in the hospital or pre-hospital setting. But if you're all interested, check out the American College of Emergency Physicians International section webpage for more information on the specialty in Europe. Wolfgang, welcome to the podcast. You previously mentioned that you had done some studies with regard to pediatric emergencies in your locale that describes the challenges with pediatric emergency medicine. Now, to the listener, it might seem like your paper is simply another one of those descriptive pre-hospital papers, but there was a finding that is not often found in the EMS literature, especially with helicopter EMS. What was it? What we were not aware of was the high frequency of aggravating environmental conditions. For instance, low temperature was recorded in almost 80% of missions. Low temperature affects diagnostic and therapeutic maneuvers on site, and small children are quickly at risk of hypothermia. When surrounding conditions are hostile, even minor injuries might become threatening. So, to my mind, helicopter EMS indications in the mountainous regions have to be seen in a wider scope, and rapid extrication of the patient takes on special importance. In our study, Interventions on site were rendered only in half of cases. Tracheal intubation was not performed. Biosoximetry was the most frequently used monitoring tool, I suppose due to its simple handling and its non-invasive nature. Mean approach intervals in our study were short, as were the mean transport intervals. I think this reflects the high density of helicopter EMS in Tyrol, especially during the winter season. Intervals on site were significantly longer whenever it was necessary to search for an interim landing place in steep and rocky terrain and whenever it was necessary to perform rope extrication. The emergency physician must be prepared to increase effort when the condition of the patient should deteriorate during the transport. I know that pre-hospital medicine in Europe is based on the concept of stay and play where stabilization and treatment is done on site and many urban EMS systems in the Germanic and French-speaking countries in Europe have this in their system. See, the physician who's doing the emergent procedures is there. Here, we adhere to the philosophy of load the patient and go to the hospital, which in North America was found to decrease mortality. Yet, we realize the studies were with on-scene paramedics, not physicians. Load and go. Yes, and getting out of the harsh mountain environment in a quick fashion was crucial to your findings. On the other line, I have Bruno Durer from Switzerland, who is also on the journal's editorial board. Welcome, Bruno. Well, hello, everybody. It's great to hear Wolfie from Innsbruck. I'm Bruno Durer. I'm working as an emergency physician as well and the mountain guide in the Eiger region. We have three surgeries in the Valley of Lauterbrunnen. Lauterbrunnen, you could, you could compare as Yosemite of the Alps. Uh, we're responsible for about 350 helicopter rescue missions in winter mainly for skiers, in summer for mountain climbers, space jumpers, paragliders, and other adventure sports. And we do every year about 20 to 30 on-site emergency treatment uh, for children. So we're having, living in a skiing region as well. Well, both according to our experience, the staff Helicopter EMS in mountain rescue is usually very well trained for emergencies of adult patients. However, pediatric emergencies are uncommon, as we have seen in your paper, and which is our experience as well. And still, you know, if we have, if you get the alert for an emergency rescue for a, for a small child, it's not so common for us, and it usually makes us a big stress. So briefly, what pediatric emergency medicine training does your helicopter EMS staff do or undergo? Well, I fully agree with you. Um, and you already have indicated that sufficient experience with pediatric emergencies when working only with EMS is difficult to obtain. 
The number of pediatric emergencies is increasing, but still low. In about 100 missions, I can expect one child with acute life-threatening conditions, and pediatric emergencies requiring CPR are even less frequent, thankfully. To my mind, routine clinical work is most important and sustaining knowledge and skills of pediatric emergency care. Regular training in simulated emergency scenarios is helpful but cannot substitute for clinical experience. For me, it is pretty easy working as an anesthetist in the theater or as a physician in the emergency room offers sufficient opportunities to care for critically ill or severely injured children. This includes the technical skills such as establishing venous access, securing, maintaining airway, and so on. It gives me more confidence in handling pediatric emergencies in the more difficult out-of-hospital setting. In addition, there is need for regular training of pediatric algorithms. This means I have to train ALS on mannequins in the training center of the hospital for both adult and pediatric ALS on a regular basis every two to three months. It is the responsibility of the emergency physician to refresh knowledge. Children are not small adults from a medical point of view. However, general emergency strategies, SOPs, security guidelines should not differ between pediatric and adult emergencies. But what we do in pediatric emergencies, we are ready to take higher risk, CPR, we perform longer, and we are going more close to our limits. What I want to point out is there is a strong emotional element with pediatric emergencies. I think that's the main difference. You brought it to the point, and according to our experience, uh, the on-site management of severely injured or dying or dead children is usually very stressing for the helicopter EMS staff. It is. With cases of post-traumatic stress disorder within the rescuers. And in your study, fortunately, I mean, you didn't have any intubations, you didn't have any resuscitations of children, but probably it's just an exception because if I look over the last five, ten years within our region, we had at least four, five, six resuscitation of children yeah. in five and ten years. So do we have a psychological debriefing system that your staff partic participates in after experiencing critical pediatric rescue or recovery? And if you do, please describe your program briefly. You raised an important issue, but the question is not easy to answer. Uh, we do have facilities, of course, but rarely someone makes use of them, including me. First of all, pediatric emergencies are always a challenge for emergency physicians. There are high expectations, there's high pressure to succeed. We have to work in an atmosphere of strong emotions. That all means lots of stress. Now, coming to your question, we do have a crisis intervention system that is offered by the Department of Clinical Psychology. In addition, one of my colleagues from Christopher's One is specialist in anesthesiology and in psychology. He can be contacted or the clinical psychologist of the university hospital can be contacted if needed. Supporting measures include diffusing, intervision, and supervision. There will be an initial assessment by the clinical psychologist to find out the most suitable method. Tragic events, as you already said, occur. It is just a question of time when you run in that situation. Communication, to my mind, is the key to overcome burden. When you cannot talk about a troublesome experience, you will hardly be able to get the burden under control. The mobilization immediately after the mission involving only the crew members is practiced at our base and may be helpful the work in emergency medicine means that you rush to places where traumatic and sometimes extreme events have occurred. It's most likely that you will be touched by what you see, by what you experience. Anxiety, fear, sadness, are normal psychological reactions, but of course depression and isolation are not. The transition between what started as a conflict and what might end as harm is fuzzy. Provide for our patients, but sometimes we lose sight of our own vulnerability. That's not the best way to go. I fear there's still something to improve in our system. Well, yeah, I think our our experience as well. You know, we have usually if we if we do mountain rescues in the mountain guiding scene, yes. mountain guides usually have a bigger 
or a stronger threshold against uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Stress disorder, so, yeah. But still, it, it occurs. And I think it's very important that we have good system for uh, psychological debriefing systems. The paper shows that on skiing slopes, and I think most of the cases uh, were on skiing slopes, that on skiing slopes, severely injured children are rather rare. That's it's a good nice. practice for helicopter EMS staff mm mountain areas to be trained regularly in PALS, as you mentioned, or training in pediatric emergency rooms. So I think all the systems that are attached to hospitals where you have pediatric emergency units uh, have a good exchange of knowledge and skill. I think that's very important. And I think your answers were very enlightening compared to the U.S., to Canada, in the European Alps, helicopter emergency medical system staff always include specially trained emergency physicians plus yeah. EMT or paramedic. And I think this is, according to our experience, especially important for the management of severe pediatric emergencies because we don't see pediatric, severe pediatric emergencies in a mountain rescue area uh, regularly, and it's always a big challenge if we have severely injured children. So, thank you very much, Paul. <laughs> thank you very much, Bruno, for this kind interview. I just have to tell you, I work in ground EMS and in helicopter EMS. I have maybe two uh, CPR, pediatric CPR situations a year. If there were more, I would look for another profession. <laughs> so, thankfully, there are only two. <laughs> and this means I have to go to the training center and have to train on the mannequin. This is no problem to me. I can do that. Yeah, that's, that's the way of doing it. Yeah. So I think it's, it's been great having this uh, conversation over the mountains. To, to <laughs> over the mountains. Thank you so much. Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs> great. To summarize, specialized pediatric emergency training is crucial, especially in the mountains. Simulation helps, but direct experience is best. However, the literature strongly supports simulation. Algorithms help in stressful environments where forgetfulness can happen easily. Yes, folks, it's practice, 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 all the more in a pre-hospital setting. Critical incident, stress debriefing, communication, and a feeling of safety among the healthcare team is crucial. An interesting study would be how mountain guides really handle catastrophic events. The result would be interesting. Thanks to all our interviewers for the new journal articles. Now we're going to move on to discuss cutting-edge wilderness medicine, education, research, leadership, and entrepreneurialism taken during the Telluride conference. So let's roll them. All right, everyone, gird your loins. We're doing an interview with Steve Roy out here at the International Society for Mountain Medicine World Congress slash Wilderness Medical Society Telluride 2016 meeting. So, Steve, thanks for coming out here. I wanted to ask you a few things. I've seen you through the past couple of years really excited about engaging yourself in wilderness medicine, wilderness medicine activity. So I'm interested to know where you're from and how you really got involved in wilderness medicine. So thanks uh, for having me, Daryl. I'm from Montreal, Canada. And I got into wilderness medicine because I was trying to decide between being a mountain guide or going to medical school. And during some trips to the, the Andes, uh, where I was doing some, some uh, routes with uh, my, one of my ice climbing buddies, we decided, I, I sort of came to the conclusion that I wasn't sure mountain guiding would be the career that I was most interested in, though I love the mountains. And shortly after that, I discovered that there was a way of mixing those things and first in search and rescue, but then, then eventually um, I uh, learned about the Wilderness Medical Society and really spurred my interest uh, in wilderness medicine. And from there, I did some training pre-hospital uh, before medical school. And by the time I was halfway through medical school, I had, was a fellow of the Academy of Wilderness Medicine and did a diploma in mountain medicine and went to do some, some mountain medicine in, in Switzerland uh, as well and really immersed myself into it. It was a really nice mix of, of my love for the mountains and my love for medicine. Wow. Yeah, it's funny because that's actually kind of my trajectory in my career as well, wanting to be a guide and deciding, well, let's do something a little bit maybe more sustainable. So that's very great. I'm wondering, over the past few years, what have you seen as the strengths and the deficiency of wilderness medicine education? 
That's a very uh, good question. I think that some of the strengths of wilderness medicine are a that wilderness medicine has always been really hands-on. I think that's uh, we we really have used simulation in a way that the rest of the medical field is is now starting to get into. But uh, and that's partly because it's hard to it's hard not to simulate patients if we want for scenarios if we want people to, to get some hands-on training. But so one of the the strength is is this uh, really big emphasis on, on simulation. I think some of the, one of the challenges is that lots of the education has been, because the, because wilderness medicine, a big part of it is also basic you know, first aid skills. Wilderness first responder has, uh, is, a, is a standard and has in some ways become the standard for even advanced providers. And so sometimes in, on one hand, advanced providers, especially physicians, don't always know the basics of splinting and you know, things that are not really taught sure. in medical school. But on the other hand, after you learn those basics, most formal programs don't always go to, to really advanced topics or push the limit uh, of the education. And, and I think that perhaps this, this is um, also related to, to one of the other challenges, which is that medical education is only now becoming uh, an important focus uh, in terms of valuing faculty development mm -hmm. as teachers and, and making, making physicians good teachers, not just medical experts. Similarly, in, in wilderness medicine, certainly the first aid courses, they've, they've really focused on being good teachers, but for the advanced courses for medical students, for, for physicians, lots of, of there, there's still room to, to develop what you could call wild med ed and develop the, the wilderness medicine educator as a, as a, as a specialty or a expertise. I think, I think those are two places that, that I see uh, lots of opportunity to, to really um, uh, advance the field and, and, and make our uh, ability to, to train experts in wilderness medicine uh, to improve our ability to do that. Yeah. We were just talking offline, too, about some of the educational opportunities that do exist. And as you know, over in New Mexico, we have a wilderness medicine rotation for residents and medical students. But you have the first in North America resident only rotation in wilderness medicine. Would you kindly talk about that briefly? Yeah, I'd be ha really happy to. Uh, yeah, so we have uh, a program that was designed uh, from the ground up for residents or attending physicians, which we ran for the first time this May. We had 13 uh, residents from across Canada in, in, a, in a number of specialties and two attendings. And uh, those, those people came from different backgrounds, mostly emergency medicine and family medicine, but we also had a general surgeon and, and an internist in critical care. Our program uh, spanned across four sites in the backcountry of Quebec. So our course ran almost entirely in the backcountry uh, and we, we uh, drove a bus between those, uh, <laughs> those sites for, uh, that spanned about a thousand kilometers. Wow. So we got a real sense of some different terrain. We had some, you know, s some basic tra AWS training and two days of survival training where they built mm. snow shelters and slept in them and did orienteering and they did a certification in, in avalanche um, safety and in uh, medical direction in, in the wilderness. What avalanche certification was that? Was that Airy or? It's the, it's the Canadian uh, Avalanche Association okay. uh, course, uh, but it's it's uh, the equivalent of the first uh, sort of the recreational avalanche level that you guys have here with the American Avalanche training. So then uh, those were you know that was some of the certifications, but we ha we had a lot of of interesting uh, sort of advanced topics where we did we had improvised amputation in the wilderness workshop. Wow with animal cadavers where we had a bunch of improvised tools and they learned from uh, an expert trauma surgeon uh, how to do do amputations with a leatherman or with another improvised tool including how to, to get the patient consented and ready uh, with analgesia for, for that. Uh, we had a dentist come in and do some wilderness dentistry, wilderness gynecology. So some, some interesting advanced topics. We also talked about uh, special populations in the wilderness so if you have uh, someone with a either pre-existing medical condition or you have a population with unique needs like a deaf individual or an individual with a, an addiction. How can you plan or advise those patients in order for them to to still be able to enjoy the wilderness um, safely. Mm -hmm. uh, then we we had you know one, one of my most exciting uh, opportunities um, was to be able to offer uh, two days training in wilderness med medical education 
followed by two days for the residents to plan and then two days for them to run a, a, a session for medical students. So basically within six days they, they had uh, gone from um, potentially never having any medical education training to, to running a, a two-day event for 50 to 60 medical students from across our province, uh, which uh, was a real tremendous success. I think the, the medical students really saw the residents as mentors and, and they were great teachers. It was really nice to see how they were able to put on such a great course for the medical students. So that was a nice opportunity as well. It was a, a long course where, where we had lots of different opportunities. Uh, sat phone conversation with someone who was in Antarctica at the time giving us a yeah. tour of the Antarctic station. Doing workshops on dissembling EpiPens where we had a hundred expired EpiPens so everyone got to practice really trying to get a lot of hands-on uh, simulation and practice and training so that people felt really comfortable with not just the basics but but trying to push their abilities to to something uh, where as when they finish you you would be happy having them as a, the expedition doctor pretty much immediately with uh, their their competence in, in managing both even really complex multi-casualty scenarios. So if a resident was interested in taking your course how would they find out more information? So they could visit our website uh, at www.wilderness.md or they could email me at steve.roy at wilderness.md. Excellent. Well, thanks for your time, Steve, and good luck for the next iteration. Thank you very much. I'll see you. Cheers. For those of you that do not know Peter Bersch, he has done extensive research in altitude medicine. He's in charge of the Human Performance Lab in Heidelberg, Germany, and now is based out in Zurich. One of Peter's research topics has been that of acclimatization. And as mountaineers, we are always looking for that silver bullet or that shortcut, that drug, the hypoxia tent, or more recently, something called ischemic preconditioning, which you can think of it like doing sprinting exercises. In due time, you perform better and you do not get as sick. Ischemic preconditioning has been shown to attenuate myocardial infarction, but can it help us in altitude? Peter gave an updated research lecture in Telluride about this technique. Ischemic preconditioning means that you produce ischemia in the limbs, for example, and this you do by using a cuff and you pressurize it above arterial pressure so no blood is flowing in for about five minutes then you have a break of five minutes and you repeat this procedure about four times and it has been shown in animal experience experiments that this um, reduces the damage induced by ischemia reperfusion uh, experiments and some of the postulated uh, pathways, how this works, could also apply for reducing acute mountain sickness. One is to reduce inflammatory response. The other is to induce endothelial response with NO. Um, there are others that uh, could theoretically contribute. And uh, there was a first study performed in a normal barrack chamber over 18 hours, and they showed that after six hours, the acute mountain sickness score was significantly lower compared to historical controls having exactly the same exposure procedure. However, after 18 hours, there was no difference anymore. Uh, the authors speculated that this lack after 18 hours might be due to a window of no protection that had been observed in uh, experiments with uh, ischemic preconditioning and that lasts between about 6 and 18 hours. So they did a second study and uh, went over two days they did the preconditioning in the Swiss Alps at ra a rather low altitude, at about 700 meters at Lauterbrunnen. Then they transported the people by the Jungfraubahn to the Jungfraujoch, which is 3,500 meters. And that's uh, near the Eiger, just for people who aren't familiar with the geography. That's, uh, that's the station between the Jungfraujoch 
Well, yeah, it's, it's in the, the, the three mountains, the r- really famous mountains there, Eiger, Mönch and Jungfrau. And between Jungfrau and Mönch, at the call of 3,500 meters, there is uh, a research station. It's also a tourist place. Uh, you have the railroad that uh, brings you up in two hours from Lauterbrunnen. So this is an ideal setting to have no effects of exercise. So what they observe there is oh, 48 hours. Uh, no effect on acute mountain sickness. Uh, it didn't depend uh, which measures they did. They also yes. did not see any effect of the hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction, which means pulmonary artery pressure goes up with hypoxia uh, in everybody, and they did not see any reducing effect. They also did not see any effects on oxygenation in the body. Interesting. And have you come across any data with regard to ischemic preconditioning for just increasing exercise tolerance with no regard to altitude? Uh, I don't know. I, 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 I didn't come across, but I must say I didn't systematically look at it. Yeah, so I, ca- it I, ca- I, can't, I can't answer this question right. really. I, I didn't go into the, the data. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for your time. Okay. Now we'll see you again. Okay. Thanks. So ischemic preconditioning can work, but not long enough to matter if you're going in an expedition. So there's no improvement in exercise or attenuation of acute mountain sickness. Sorry, folks. That's just the way it is. Oh, yeah. I'm an emergency physician in Longmont, Colorado, and I have an affiliate appointment at the University of Colorado. Well, folks, I was minding my own business at the cocktail lounge in the Mountain Village when none other than Dr. Linda Keyes appeared. Yes, the Dr. Linda Keyes, who was just awarded the Founders Award and was also the recipient of the WMS Education Award in 2012. She's very well known in the society, and we spent a few moments discussing an interesting topic about women and leadership in the society. It's uh, great to talk to you here at the WMS conference in Telluride. And what I just wanted to talk to you about briefly is, you know, talk about the importance of having women in leadership in the WMS. Well, anyone who was at the meeting saw that there were hundreds of women in the audience, but many fewer women up on the podium. And I was uh, deeply honored to receive the Founders Award this year, which has been in place for over 25 years, but I'm only the second woman to win that award, and the last one was 10 years ago. I think that's crazy, and that the people who are awarding these honors need to recognize that there are a lot of really great women doing cool wilderness medicine work. Well, and I think it speaks to the I guess even even you, I, I would see you as a mentor to a lot of the younger women coming up in wilderness medicine. And guess would it be wise to say that you would encourage more women to take proactive roles within the society? Absolutely. I, I have been a mentor to several women, and I would love to be a mentor for more. But I think so. What what I'm trying to say is. Um, Yes, I think younger women need more mentorship and also just there needs to be greater visibility to know that there's a place for them and I would really like to encourage women to get involved in the WMS Society committees because that's a path to leadership and the WEM journal. We have many women who are excellent peer reviewers but I would like to see more of that and I would like to see more of those women join the editorial board and I don't, I think just with a little bit of effort, we can make that happen. Great. Okay. Is there anything else you'd want to say about you reinforcing the role of women in the society? Well, I know we there's a tradition to have the Wild Women Divas happy hour, which started as like a small party in someone's condo, and this year turned into um, you know overwhelming the hotel bar. Wow. Where, where was that? Um, just here in Mountain Village? Yeah, that was right here in Mountain Village. Po- the Poacher's Inn or whatever. <laughs> That's great. And I was really sad to show up late and not get to meet nearly as many women as I wanted to, but um, I was super impressed with the turnout. And I should say that there are two really um, incredible nurse practitioners who are kind of the driving force behind the divas, uh, Linda Lee and Laura McGladry, or many people know her as GLAD. And I hope that their efforts are recognized, too, because I think they've been a real mentor to many of the upcoming women in the society. People could Google their names and find out how they could do stuff. And it sounds like this could be something really big where it would develop and snowball and become a force to be reckoned with. 
Of course. <laughs> well, thanks, Linda, for your time. Thanks for having me. All right, we'll see you. <laughs> Lastly, let's discuss French wilderness medicine. Voyage, voyage. I was having another cocktail in the lounge and caught up with Dr. Emmanuel Cauchy from Chamonix, France. He's also known as Dr. Vertical in Europe, and he's done much research in frostbite. He's also an IFMGA mountain guide and has done many expeditions throughout the world. I asked him briefly about a special mountain telemedicine medical kit that he developed for expedition physicians. Here's our conversation. Manu, what Peter Hackett was talking about the other day is that there is a diver's alert network that will work all over the world where if you get a diving emergency, you can call the diver's alert network 24 hours, seven days a week. But we don't have that in the mountains except in France. So if you would tell us in the Wilderness Medical Society a little bit about iFremont and the telemedicine medical kit that you use, that would be great. I think it's a very um, good idea because we, we have this kind of uh, services for the divers in uh, that, uh, that works very well. We, uh, we think that it's a very good idea for, for mountain. The first to de develop uh, this kind of, of uh, service is the, the sailor because uh, they go around the world uh, and they can have very serious problems in the middle of uh, Antarctic or Pacific. So. Uh, in France, we have a service that works from about uh, 15 years. Is the reason we decide to uh, to create the, the same things for the mountains, the, the mountaineers that didn't have any possibility to to bring a lot of materials and mm -hmm. very heavy. In on the sea, you can you can bring a very uh, <laughs> heavy telemedicine uh, suitcase right. with a lot of things. But 15 years ago, we didn't have this the kind of technical devices we have now. Now we began to have a very little devices that could be possible now to, to send a lot of things. It's not expensive because uh, uh, you can imagine now to, uh, uh, to offer these services to any people that didn't have uh, the possibility to pay too much. Mm -hmm. So we, th we think we thought that it was the moment, it was uh, the time to develop that. We began to develop the system two years ago to be available from any people on the field. The most important problem was to, to have the agreement with the European Health Ministry, and that take about two years to have the agreement. But because you have to have the agreement and you have to protect all your data. So we, we began to, to use it with the eight agency, tricking agency in France. Mm -hmm. From uh, eight months now, we have about 5,000 people that use the system. We are 11 doctors, medical doctor experts in the call center. Uh -huh. Five are uh, from Switzerland and five from France. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are available every time overnight during the day uh, to respond to any problems coming from uh, Nepal, uh, Kilimanjaro, uh, South, South America. And uh, it's a reason uh, as well. Uh, furthermore, we, we go to, we have to train the guide in different parts of the world. So they uh, use, they take the, the local guides to do it. So we have to, to go around the world to, to train the local guide. So from three years, we, we trained a lot of um, guides in Nepal. 45 local guides in Kimonjao had the, the agreements to, to use a SOS MAM because the system is calling SOS MAM. SOS, MAM. SOS and MAM, the first denomination was a Mal Aigu des Montagnes. It's yeah, a acute, acute mountain, mountain sickness, sickness in France. <laughs> right. But now we transform the MAM. <laughs> No, medical advice in mountain. So, medical, advi I like yeah. that. medical, medical advice, advice in mountain. mountain. Now, this is interesting. The, the person who subscribes, they pay 100 euros a year, which is very reasonable. I just returned as the expedition physician from Shishapangma. Mm -hmm. I had to lighten my load. It was very heavy. How heavy is this telemedicine kit? Normally, it depends on the kind of expedition. If you are just a trekking guide, the medical kit with a system about five kilo 
five, five kilo, kilo five kilo wow. it's enough but if you want to uh, organize a very expedition this high altitude like uh, Mustagata or Shishapangma right you, you need to to take more things because uh, so you need a yak. yeah yeah you need a, <laughs> a yak but it's, it's depend of the ability of the of the correspondent we have a lot of medical doctors that came in Fremont to improve their ability to treat specific mountain illness so if you are you can do as you are able to do it's depend of the quality but You can be correspondent as a medical doctor, or a paramedical, or a mountain guide, or anybody, anybody that didn't have any experience in medicine. You have to treat all the illness before that become to be severe. By example, in a, if you have a pulmonary edema with guide, because it's all, always we know at the beginning is the morning. We know that the, the sign increased during the night because right, of the desaturation. The, the, the morning is too, too late to treat pneumonia edema. edema. It's very uh-huh. severe. It's, uh, uh, a lot of people die. It's better to realize that there is a problem just before to sleep, just uh, during the evening. And it's good for a guy to, uh, to detect that there is something that doesn't work. Uh, just to use an uh, oximeter, to mm-hmm. use a sign, to, to take the good decision to get done before the night. It's uh, an example right. we have to do. I think it's very more important to push, to focus about the prevention. And uh, the major signs, major core we have, we had during the last year, is always a problem of uh, acclimatizations. That with a guy didn't uh, succeed to, uh, to treat acute mountain sickness grade one or grade two. It's very good to give us more, more information to decrease the first signs, maybe to say, ah, stop didn't you, you don't have to to go up get right. down to stay at the same altitude before and it's difficult to treat that's incredible yeah. so you can actually train these guides who are not medically trained to detect the first signs of pulmonary yeah. edema before the night yeah. that, that's amazing that you can train these people because in my experience it takes a little medical knowledge or intuition but you can yeah. train them to do that yeah. yes and another thing is very important It's about the prevention, it's about the teleconsultation we did. Ah. Because our application, our system, can propose a possibility to have a teleconsultation before to start. All the people that are uh, coming for buying a, a trekking to the agency has a possibility to take an appointment with us before to start. And we can discuss with them. First time to explain the principal aim of acclimatization, what is altitude because they don't have any knowledge about altitude, how to, uh, to have a good acclimatization, uh, what about the dehydration, what about the food, what about the, the training, the treatment they can have that would be inc- incompatible with the altitude, if they have other problems before, and maybe they need uh, some uh, examination before as a effort test with cardio- to see a cardiologist mm-hmm. or to, to make maybe uh, apoxia test to decrease uh, the risk of to have a problem. If we think they have a, a susceptibility to develop acute mountain sickness, we can propose a treatment to avoid the development of uh, acute right. mountain sickness. And we uh, exam, exam the planning of ascents. How is your speed of ascent? And if we know that it's uh, may, may a little speedy, we can, <laughs> we can just uh, propose to change, to, uh, to uh, discuss with the agency, to decrease the, the speed of ascent. And maybe if it's not possible because uh, if for their work, for job, for something like that, right. for, we can propose a prophylaxis just to decrease the risk. For somebody who's healthy and they're acclimatizing, okay, do you recommend an ascent profile of 300 to 500 meters a day, or is it more or less? What do you generally recommend for a good ascent profile? Uh, we recommend to, uh, to ascend as more slowly as possible, always. So it's not always possible to negotiate with, uh, because they already bought the trekking. We can uh, communicate with to, to make some modifications about some trekking that um, probably seems to be to speed. But there are a lot of agency, specifically for agency in the country. By example, in Nepal, there is a lot of agencies that didn't have any knowledge about the, the, the problems. They don't have the knowledge of, uh, of the, the rule of ascent we, we propose in the WMS or in France, it's the same. There are some people that take trekking in La Paz, by example. Mm-hmm. You start from Paris and you arrive to La Paz at 4,200 meters of altitude to explain that there is 
probably a problem and um, maybe it's better to try to have an acclimatization before in France to try to maybe make a first time Mont Blanc ascent or something like that just to, to prepare. Take care about the, the heart problem, take care about the susceptibility and uh, sometimes propose a diamox to use uh, prevention. It's the same thing for lay, lay. It's very right, high. Right, there is a, right. And there is a people that uh, want to, to, be, uh, to make a reportage for television they didn't they never have enough time to do it huh? <laughs> they're always the problems they have to Chamonix they say oh, I want to make a, 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 a subject a, about right, in, documentary in a, a documentary about at high altitude but uh, just three days oh, no. <laughs> you say how is it possible so you have every time to modify to, uh, to discuss research to, to find the best way to avoid uh, <laughs> well thanks Manu for your time <laughs> alright And that concludes our Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live podcast, brought to you by the Wilderness Medical Society, which is copyrighted with all rights reserved, published by Elsevier. Drop us a line at WEMLive at WMSorg, and do the quiz questions at WMS.org for your CME. Be good, be safe, and see you next time.